Please be seated. Welcome again to Christ the King. My name is Peter Schwanda. I serve as a priest here at Christ the King, and we are in a sermon series during Lent called The Wages of Sin, The Gift of God. It's a chance for us to consider sin's devastating impact, not to wallow in guilt, but so that we can better appreciate God's salvation in Christ. In order to appreciate how good the gift is, we must know how bad sin is. And to know how bad sin is, we need to know how good God's original vision for life is. So that's the arc that we'll follow today. We'll look at a compelling vision for wholeness, the convincing evidence of brokenness, and the hopeful power of restoration. You can find sermon notes on your leaflet on page 11. In 2010, I had the privilege to travel to Israel to work on an archaeological dig and to spend time traveling the Holy Land. And it was a trip that certainly enlivened my faith and engaged my senses, the the sights of the biblical land, knowing the geography, the, the smells, the taste, the heat of the sun. It was also a trip where one of my favorite memories is a t-shirt that I saw in the tourist gift shops, which read, Shalom, y'all. <laughs> Clearly marketed, perhaps, to us. Now, I know I'm from the North, but forgive me this. I think that y'all is a rich phrase. It's one which encapsulates and echoes some of the best of Southern identity. It's, it's inclusive in its plurality. It's hospitable even. Perhaps spoken with a drawl suggests a, a slower, more gracious pace of life. Well, just like shalom perhaps encapsulates some identity, or excuse me, just as y'all does for Southerners, shalom does for God's people. It's the single word that best, best captures their identity as God's people. It's used as a greeting, even as a, a blessing. You might hear a priest uh, pray out of numbers, the Lord bless you and keep you, make his face shine upon you and give you his shalom, his peace. Its definition is quite broad. It's, it's one of these words that is best described by a series of images or adjectives than a single synonym. It can be translated as peace, safety, harmony, health, flourishing, multidimensional well-being. Or as Cornelius Plantiga puts it, it is the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight. Now many of you know, and as I confessed, I'm from the north. I'm from Maine. And one of the things I love about going home to visit my parents is when you cross the border from New Hampshire into the state of Maine, a large blue sign with white text greets you. It simply and perhaps arrogantly reads, Maine, the way life should be. <laughs> That's a pretty good, pretty good synopsis of Shalom. It's the way life should be. Let's turn to our text this morning in Deuteronomy chapter 6 to explore this vision for wholeness. Uh, the book of Deuteronomy tells a new generation of God's people about the Exodus events and about God's covenant with Israel. And these verses, our reading today from chapter 6, are the defining verses for the entire book. They look back on the history and they summarize God's law. They affirm for God's people who God is and who they are to be. 
If you look at verse 1 through 3, this is with reference to God's law. God's law, which has been given to his rescued people that he is now bringing to the promised land. And what does it tell us in verse 3 is the reason why God has given this law, why God is taking them on this journey? Look down with me. It's that it may go well with you, that you'll increase, that you'll grow, that you'll experience the richness and fullness that life has to offer. In other words, the law and God's provision has been given for flourishing. It's been given for shalom, for wholeness. Now, this vision of life is compelling because it's something that we should want. It's also compelling in the other sense of the word in that God commands it. He tells us we should pursue it. Look down at verse 4 and 5 with me. These verses uh, are known as the Shema of the 5,845 verses in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. These are the best known out of all of them. In many ways, they are the fundamental creed, the fundamental affirmation of the Jewish faith. They're taught to Jewish boys as soon as they can speak. They're actually the verses which are, among others, written in little tefillah, the the little things which are tied on the wrists or on the head of, of those who are especially pious Jews. And these verses are actually Jesus's answer to the question that the scribe asked in our gospel reading. Which commandment is the most important of all? This is the summary of the law and the identity of God's people. And it tells us what it means to pursue shalom. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. So first, our wholeness is based on God's wholeness. The Hebrew word for one in this verse, echad, is a plural one, meaning there are are parts to this oneness. It's wholeness, as in two became one flesh. The Lord is complete. He's unified. And our vision for wholeness is based on God's unified nature. We are created in God's image because we are to be likewise integrated, whole, a physical body and a spiritual soul, we're given two distinct natures that are not meant to be separated. Consider a molecule of water, hydrogen and oxygen, a fusion. If either part is removed, it ceases to be water. It's similar for humans. Our body and soul are not separate elements. We know from uh, many recent movies and Netflix shows that a body without a soul is a zombie, and a soul without a body is a ghost, and neither are human. Our inner and our outer go together. Secondly, our love for God should be reflected in all of our life. Some of you may know Scott Redd, who spoke on a Christ the King Parish Retreat a couple of years ago, a seminary professor, he writes this, God's character is whole, pure, full, rich, and simple. And so it demands a response of whole, pure, full, rich, and simple love. He says that in this passage, the whole of human life is in view. 
Now it uses the word heart, soul, and might, but these are overlapping categories. They're not meant for us to compartmentalize our, our feelings, our thoughts, our actions, but to include all of our life. Our heart representing our, our inner being, our soul representing actually the whole of ourselves. The Hebrew word for soul here, nefesh, means all that your outer being includes, your personality, your being, your soul, your words, and our might. This is shorthand to refer to all that we affect in the world, all of our outer actions and doings. Look down at verse 6 through 9, we see this fleshed out. God's word should be on our heart, part of our inner being. God's word should be a part of ourself, our conversations, from when we get up in the morning to when we go to bed at night, part of our, our daily life, as close to us as if they were bound on our wrists and around our head. And lastly, God's word should be shown in actions to the world beyond our door, as if written in our yard. This passage really tells us the simple truth that God's word should be part of us through and through. And this vision of wholeness is for our good and for God's glory. But if we have an honest understanding of reality, there is convincing evidence of brokenness. For God's people uh, in Deuteronomy, this was certainly true. Forty years of wilderness wanderings had revealed the simple truth of a broken covenant that led to all sorts of other problems. I want you to think about some of the popular and sometimes fantastical movies and stories of our culture. Some of you may be more familiar with Lord of the Rings than Harry Potter, but this morning, for those who know Harry Potter, you'll appreciate this illustration. In these types of books, the more evil or wicked a villain is, the less human or less humanely they are depicted. Think about the evil villain Voldemort in Harry Potter. For those who know the story, he thinks that he can split his soul into seven parts and hide them in these objects called horcruxes. He thinks that it will give him more power, but instead, it simply leads to a weakening, a disintegration. And as the movie or the books go on, he's shown in an increasingly grotesque form, less and less like a human, as if he is decaying before our eyes. The problem is that when our very being is divided, it is natural that we less and less reflect our humanity, and less and less do we reflect the image of God. Think about this for us in the, the large and small ways that we experience that type of division. Hopefully not to the degree of Voldemort, but in small ways, we feel it and we see it. Think about what we pray as part of our, our liturgy. We prayed in our collect for the day that outwardly in our bodies and inwardly in our souls, we would experience God's grace. Our confession, we confess all that we do in thought, word, and deed, which is not in sync with God's desires. Now this Sin, this brokenness, reveals itself in ways that are both personal and private for ourselves, but also in ways which are 
public and communal that we experience as part of life in a broken world. Cornelius Plantiga, the theologian I referenced earlier, writes, sin is not only the breaking of law, but also the breaking of covenant with one Savior. The same covenant that Israel had with God. It's the breaking of a relationship. And we feel that personally. We feel that personally in our relationship with God, and we feel it personally in the ways that it ripples into our relationships with others. When our lives are out of sync, this brokenness has a way of seeping into every part of our lives and even intensifying. Consider the ways that brokenness shows up in distraction, paying attention to the device in front of you and not even able to see the person in front of you. The ways that that might lead to disintegration in your life where goals are are set aside or abandoned, where important relationships atrophy. I think that's something we probably have all experienced in this last year and wish it were not so. And furthermore, we experience brokenness in much more destructive ways. The impact of addiction, of sexual perversion, harmful ripple effects that we see in our lives and in the world around us. Now, it's important to know that not all brokenness that we experience reveals personal sin, but personal sin does reveal brokenness in our lives. Consider more broadly the ways we see this brokenness in the fallen world, which is out of sync with God's desires. For Israel and Deuteronomy, the wilderness wanderings and much of their history revealed an ignorance and a negligence of justice and of the compassion they were to show to those they encountered. In the book Just Mercy, which was turned into a movie this past year, Equal Justice Initiative founder and lawyer Brian Stevenson shares the stories of people who have been failed by the criminal justice system, those who have been unjustly sentenced while innocent, those who have faced harsh sentences, and he advocates for a more compassionate and merciful response specifically for those who are vulnerable who face these types of injustice, for children, for the mentally ill, the poor, for racial minorities. Towards the end of his book, or if you've seen the movie, vision, uh, movie version, he reflects on his legal career and the brokenness he's experienced. He writes, for the first time I realized that my life was just full of brokenness. I worked in a broken system of injustice. My clients were broken by mental illness, poverty, and racism. By disease, drugs, and alcohol, pride, fear, and anger. We are all broken by something. We all share the condition of brokenness. Sometimes we're fractured by the choices we make. Sometimes we're shattered by things we would never have chosen. And then he sums it up with this line. He says, our brokenness is also the source of our common humanity, the basis for our shared search for comfort, meaning, and healing. When we know how good God's plan is for the wholeness that we should experience, then we see how bad 
sin and brokenness is. But that should point us towards this need for comfort and healing and powerful restoration. Much more than the law was for the Israelites, Jesus is our hope for powerful restoration. Jesus, who is one with God, whose divine nature and human nature are fully integrated. Jesus, who heals people of spiritual brokenness, saying, son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus, who heals people of physical brokenness, saying, take up your mat and walk. In Mark 5, there's a man named Legion, who some would say is a picture of brokenness, perhaps the most broken individual we see in all of Scripture. He suffers from demon possession, from inner brokenness. It's important to note that this is not a diagnosed mental illness. That is something different. This is possession by demons. He experiences outer brokenness. He cuts himself with stones. He's, he's separated from society. It says that he lives among the tombs. He breaks the very chains which hold him. And even though he's the greatest picture of brokenness that we might see in the New Testament, Jesus is powerful to heal him, to restore him to his right mind, to society, to wholeness in the image of God. He's a picture before of something that seems far from human. And he encounters face to face the image of God in Jesus, and he is brought to wholeness that reflects that humanity. There's a Japanese art of pottery repair called kintsukurai or kintsugi. It means golden repair. It's where you take a, a broken bowl or a broken vessel and you put it back together and repair the broken seams with gold or silver. Far better than the super glue that I attempt to repair my grandmother's broken china with. Our china cabinet if you look too closely, is really just spider webs of all of the times I've dropped it. In the book Beyond Colorblind, author Sarah Shin writes about knowing our history, even our, our ethnic history, and looking to God for redemption. And she writes this about Kinsukuroi. She says, God is not content to leave us in our brokenness, and he sends Jesus to redeem us. As in Kinsukuroi, when Jesus enters our stories, the healing, redemption, and reconciliation he brings is the undeniably striking golden seam. Kinsukuroi doesn't deny the brokenness of the pottery. It uses it to tell a new story. Likewise, our scars, our brokenness, are transformed by Jesus' brokenness. Because Jesus was broken and took on our brokenness at the cross to bring us wholeness, to bring us shalom. And like Legion, Jesus can restore our lives so that they tell the story of his restoration. Because those who hope in Christ and the restoration he brings are promised a new heart and a new spirit. And those are not meant to be two separate images, but two things which are bound together in a restored wholeness. When Christ returns, the book of Acts tells us that he will restore 
everything. In the new heavens and the new earth, Christ will claim every square inch of creation, and that includes you, and that includes me. It includes our physical bodies, it includes our thoughts, it includes our emotional life, it includes our relationships, all of it united and in sync with God's purposes for our good. For those who were disappointed by the Harry Potter reference, here's your Lord of the Rings reference. You might be familiar with the way that the third installment of Lord of the Rings comes to a conclusion. There's been a great battle for the Ring of Power and Hobbit Samwise, Gamgee has been badly injured and he's not sure what fate has befallen Gandalf the Great Wizard. Samwise recovers from his injury and a voice calls him back from unconsciousness. Well, Master Samwise, how do you feel? And Sam is, is caught somewhere between unconsciousness and consciousness, between bewilderment and the joy of hearing a voice he knows, and he says, Gandalf, I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? Tolkien, of course, is drawing from our Christian faith. Revelation 21 says that God will come back to be with his people and that he will wipe every tear from our eyes, that there will be no more death or mourning, that everything sad will come untrue, that everything broken will be made whole. And so this morning as we close, wherever you are feeling broken, wherever you are feeling brokenhearted, may we trust in this hope and power. May we trust that in Jesus we are, as 2 Corinthians says, we are new creations. And that Christ's love can compel us to believe that God has begun this good work of restoration. Thanks be to God. Amen.